I'm Dorothy Wickenden. On today's Politics and More podcast, two discussions of the Green New Deal. First, The New Yorker's Eliza Griswold talks with Varshini Prakash, the founder of the Sunrise Movement, the grassroots organization pushing for aggressive climate change legislation. Then John Cassidy talks with Carol Browner, the former chief of the EPA and the Obama administration's climate czar. Earlier this year, a group of young climate activists, children mostly, showed up at Senator Dianne Feinstein's office. And they were there to talk about the Green New Deal. And suddenly, things got pretty testy. The government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all for the people. You know what's interesting about this group is I've been doing this for 30 years. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. Those activists who ticked off Senator Feinstein were part of the Sunrise Movement. Apart from a membership that's very young, the Sunrise Movement sounds pretty different from the big environmental groups like the Sierra Club, say. Rather than talking about the fate of polar bears or coral reefs, they tend to frame the issue in these terms. We're the ones who are going to suffer if we don't do something really fast. Even though the idea of the Green New Deal has been around for at least a decade, it's really taken on legs because of the Sunrise Movement. Here's Eliza Griswold, a staff writer who's just won the Pulitzer Prize. It was really fascinating during the midterms to get to watch what the what impact the young people had, particularly in Pennsylvania, that I was covering the swing state and looking at them on the ground, just the number of doors they knocked was incredibly inspiring. Eliza talked recently with Varshini Prakash, the 25-year-old co-founder of the Sunrise Movement. One of the things that I find so exciting about both Sunrise and the Green New Deal is this the idea of climate justice, that finally environmental justice and the climate change movement are getting on the same page. Well, part of how I think about this is, is if we look at the last, you know, few decades of, of, of climate movement activity and of climate policy, just focusing on the climate alone has not been a winning strategy. One of the reasons why I think the Green New Deal actually has a chance at building this winning coalition of, of lots of different diverse constituencies is that it's fundamentally about tying climate action to people's basic interests, right? Like jobs and the economy and health and healthcare. It includes a 10-year economic mobilization to transform every part of our economy and society to stop the climate crisis and get us off of fossil fuels. Um, The second piece of it is that we ought to guarantee a job to every person who wants or needs one doing the critical work of avoiding climate catastrophe. Um, And so people might immediately balk at a word like decarbonization or, or climate change or something like that, but everyone cares about access to clean air and clean water. Um, Everybody cares about having access to a good, high-paying job and being able to support their family. Okay, so that's that's the plan on addressing communities and, and garnering community support. How do you plan to get such an ambitious agenda through Congress? Yes, the path to power here, or to victory, um, 
I think about this in a few different ways. First of all, of course, we need to replace Trump. We need to elect pro-climate action, pro-good jobs majorities into the House and the Senate. At the same time, we need to be uh, we need to be building big, robust, massive movements that include millions of people for social change to be keeping up the pressure on the outside. So I think the biggest thing that we need to ensure is that we are setting ourselves up so that two years from now, when the political conditions are ripe, we have built the political will and we have built also the public consensus, the public support so that we can pass these policies when the window of opportunity arises. Um, and it's going to be very similar to how FDR's New Deal uh, occurred as well. FDR didn't get up and say, you know, we have a New Deal policy that's 10,000 pages long and we're going to pass it in one fell swoop. He sort of embraced what he called bold experimentation over a decade of time where he threw dozens and dozens of policies at the wall and saw what stuck. Um, And I think we need to embrace this experimentation as well in our politics today and do whatever it takes to really pass the policies that are going to prevent us from going over this tipping point that we are on the verge of. Okay, Varshini, what do you say to criticism like, how are you going to manage decarbonization in this particular time frame when there is no carbon-free option for, say, jet fuel? When people bear down on some of the specifics and say, these are great goals, Mm -hmm. but they are impossible technologically to Mm -hmm. achieve in this time. What's your response to that? I mean, there have been lots of people telling us that we are radical, (laughs) that we are unrealistic, that we're naive. (laughs) We've heard it all at this point. Um, I don't know if we can completely decarbonize our economy in the next 10 years. I don't know if we can eliminate all warming emissions, but we have done incredible things in this nation's history before. We have an amazing track record. You know, we are facing this grave existential threat, a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. Scientists are telling us there will be, you know, 150 million climate refugees by mid-century, 150 million. All of our coral reefs will be gone. Hundreds of millions of premature deaths from pollution. Um, We don't have a choice but to strive. And I think in striving, we can open up all sorts of political opportunities uh, and perhaps technological opportunities than we could have ever before. Recently, the AFL-CIO came out against the Green New Deal, saying that it could cause, quote, I think, immediate harm to millions of union workers. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated issue. And I don't think it's an it's an issue that's going to be completely solved in, in mere days or weeks. Um, I do believe that the Green New Deal has the greatest chance of actually bringing both labor and enviros and businesses and, and more farmers and ranchers, indigenous communities to the table, because I think it's the first time that we have articulated uh, a vision to stop climate change that's actually rooted in a just transition in 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 justice and equity. And it is, is also about economic revitalization. 
many of these unions actually represent um, working families and communities of color that are already experiencing the impacts of climate change. I was talking to the head of uh, one major union the other day who said that over 70,000 of their union workers had been affected by Hurricanes Harvey and Florence and that they had had to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars to support these individuals. So this is hurting union members right now, and a lot of people understand that. Many people are very much on the same page about the need to do something about it. And now we need to actually have communication with both not just leaders at the top, but at the grassroots as well to bring the majority of folks along. Do you support primary campaigns against Democrats who don't back the Green Deal? Yeah, we will. Definitely. So the Oklahoma senator, James Inhofe, called the Green New Deal the gift that keeps on giving. How concerned are you that Republicans are going to use policies to address climate as a bludgeon against Democrats? I'm not that concerned, frankly. We're seeing that um, the Green New Deal has absolutely skyrocketed into the public conversation and the nation's discourse over the last five months. What used to be a, a relatively niche policy priority is now becoming the number one most popular policy amongst Democratic uh, 2020 caucus goers. And even um, majorities of Republicans, even conservative Republicans, who are very much in support of things like investments in sustainable agriculture uh, and and renewable energy, supporting energy efficiency programs, and interested in, in the job creation component of the Green New Deal as well. So I think, you know, Republicans will continue to use this to bash whomever, but frankly, they're the ones who end up looking pretty ludicrous in, in the end. But one of the talking points for Green New Deal opponents is this, they're going to take away our hamburgers, which obviously you've heard, I'm sure. Um, how do you deal with people who belong to an opposition that is really hostile, that isn't engaging in the debate in a substantive way? How do you begin to reach those people? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm, I will say I don't think you can reach everybody. I think the the key is to make sure that this the, some of these key individuals who sort of passively support action on climate or, or support these policies. Like, um, for example, there are a lot of farmers and ranchers in the heartland and in the Midwest and places that you see this this terrible rhetoric around, you know, we're going to kill your cows and take your hamburgers and all of that manifesting most strongly. Um, a lot of those folks are really interested in investments in sustainable agriculture and improving livelihoods for farmers and ranchers and ensuring that people um, have access to good food. But in large part, the Democratic Party and uh, the climate movement writ large has failed to actually go out and talk to these people on the ground. And that's like the first thing that our movement is trying to do and needs to do uh, to win on this moving forward. Varshini Prakash is co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, and she spoke with The New Yorker's Eliza Griswold. The Green New Deal is the most ambitious climate proposal ever brought to Congress, coming to the table during one of the most divisive periods we've ever seen. No one knows better than Carol Browner how hard this legislation will be to pass. Browner is a veteran of D.C. politics, chief of the EPA under Bill Clinton, and the so-called climate czar under Barack Obama. And neither of those administrations, it's got to be said, was able to make any real dent in the climate crisis. Carol Browner spoke recently with The New Yorker's John Cassidy. 
I mean, just to set this in a bit of historical context, if we perhaps just go back to the Obama administration, which did have a lot of green policies, cap and trade, fuel efficiency standards, sort of clean air regulations, which the Republicans depicted as a war on coal, etc. Perhaps you could just remind us what the Obama administration tried to do on the environment and how far it succeeded and how far it failed. Well, I think um, President Obama came to office with a strong commitment to address climate change. And there were laws on the books. He didn't need Congress. He could use the existing Clean Air Act, the existing transportation laws, to actually set standards to make cars more fuel efficient, uh, to set the first ever greenhouse gas standards, to set appliance efficiency standards, to regulate pollution from, from power plants. And so he set out to do all of that. He simultaneously went to Congress and said, let's pass a cap-and-trade bill, uh, the Waxman-Markey bill. It did pass in the House. Unfortunately, it did not pass right. in the Senate. But you know, then Obama first went to Copenhagen, where there was an international discussion on climate change, then goes to Paris, where we secure a global deal where each country will deliver to the best of uh, their abilities. And you know, I think that, that President Obama deserves a lot of credit for sort of moving uh, the actions along, not just saying words, but actually taking concrete steps. Right. Um, I think the Green New Deal takes a net another big step forward in terms of its aspirations, in terms of its ambitions. But it seems like the Green New Deal approach is pretty different to the Obama administration. I mean, it seems to me one of the things about the Green New Deal is it's got a sort of, whether you agree with it or not, it's got a sort of conceptual framework behind it. They've got this target for the IPCC of... Um, you know, hitting zero Z emissions by 2050. They say that in order to get there, you've got to basically have a clean power grid by 2030. That's been misinterpreted in some places, saying the whole thing's got to be done by 2030, but it's a very ambitious agenda. Does that make it different from the Obama administration? I mean, did you guys have a sort of overall target in your minds? I think one of the things I learned and the administration learned from Waxman-Markey is that sort of a one-size-fits-all economy-wide approach was right. probably not going to get us what we needed and that you could look at the various sectors that contribute to carbon pollution and develop programs around those sectors. Right. And so, for example, what you do with cars might be, you know, set uh, fuel efficiency standards, set greenhouse gas standards, drive towards new technologies, new forms of uh, micromobility, for example. What you do for power plants might might be different. Uh, power plants are very familiar with a cap-and-trade regime, so you could use that. But it's, I think what the Green New Deal is very clear about is that we need very, very bold ambitions and that there's not one solution out there. I mean, there does seem to be, certainly among young voters, there does seem to be a, an appetite for sort of, you know, radical approaches to this and sort of feeling that the policies in the past have failed. Um, I don't know that I agree that they've Oh, sorry, they, no. haven't, they haven't been, <laughs> as, as, as someone who's been a party to a lot of them, what I would say sorry, is that's... they have been less than um, a perfect. That, But you know, the way environmental regulations work is they're right. building blocks. So you look at the science and you set a, a, a smog standard and right. you achieve reductions. You regulate industries who create smog, who, reduce, who emit ozone. And then you right. look again and again and again, right? And you make these... Uh, building blocks that get you where you want to go. Right. Sorry. I, 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 what I meant is that they failed to sort of reverse climate change so far. That's fair. Right? <laughs> that's fair. Um, what about the cost of all this? You know, that's obviously the Republic, uh, Republicans, and I would imagine some Democrats too at some point are going to raise the issue of whether this is, you know, feasible. Are we going to have to raise taxes? I mean, you see various figures of sort of $10 trillion over a long time. Is that a feasible um, politically, do you think? 
Well, first of all, I think these numbers are are, are hard to to follow, and and they're sort of based on a, a lot of uh, sort of guesses slash assumptions, I guess. Um, I think it's important to to, to look at history here. Um, we have time and time again set strong environmental regulatory standards. And there have been naysayers at the time who said, oh, we'll never be able to meet that standard. But once the EPA sets that standard, once it is an enforceable standard, American innovation and ingenuity rises to the challenge and we find a new and cheaper way to get it done. Virtually every single major regulation that has come out of the Environmental Protection Agency to protect the air we breathe, the water we drink, has been met for far less money than was originally thought because we're good at finding solutions. And you know, part of the challenge of climate change is we need to get going. We need to set these standards. And then it becomes the art of the possible. And I think we'll be good at that. Right. So I, I think it's really hard to, with a huge amount of accuracy, sort of project what the impact, the economic impacts are going to be. But I mean, before we get there, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to build a sort of political coalition for this. And already tensions are emerging. The Republicans are already starting to sort of demagogue this and, you know, saying the Democrats are going to take away your hamburgers, etc. Um, I've been there. They, they accused <laughs> me. Let me see. What was it? I was going to take away your barbecue grill. That was uh, one of the... You've got the AFL-CIOs being very resistant to the Green New Deal, so you're not really getting much labor buy-in. And then on the uh, environmentalist side, you're getting people in the Sunrise Movement saying that they'll only support primary candidates who, you know, go along with their approach. So there seems to be a threat of, um, you know, sort of internecine conflict inside the Democratic Party on this. How are we going to build a coalition which can, you know, overcome what is, at the moment, a Republican Senate? The Green New Deal people would say we need a big grassroots campaign. It's the only way we're going to get 60 senators, et cetera. Well, I agree. We need a big grassroots campaign uh, without a doubt. We also need industry. We need industry leaders to step up. Uh, they're very influential uh, with uh, members of Congress, with members of the Senate. Is it realistic to expect the power industry, gas companies, oil companies to, um, you know, it sounds a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas. Are they ever going to agree to this? Well, I think there are some that have seen the future. Um, you know, they're also getting a lot of pressure from their investors. Right. Uh, there is a shareholder resolution filed with Exxon. Uh, it is supported by, I think, nine investors, a large investment companies right. that, that represent $9 trillion in assets under management, right? right. You know, in the, if you look at the long history of environmental protection in this country, sort of pollution right. efforts as opposed to conservation, what you will see is people start to move forward and then Congress follows because you have to set a floor. Right. Uh, it may not ever be as much as we all hope for, uh, but it will be a step, and then we have to argue for more. Right. I mean, when you were doing cap and trade, you actually got some buy-in from the energy industry? We did. As, right. We right. did have some some buy-in, um, uh, particularly in the House during the Waxman-Markey debate. Right. I mean, I think some people in the Green New Deal movement uh, would like to just sort of say, let's just mobilize and crush the corporations here. Where They're never going to agree with us. We just need, instead of trying to do deals with them, what we need to do is mobilize the public, get mass support, and just vote the legislation through and they'll have to deal with it then. Well, we need 60 votes. And so the question is, how do you put together 60 votes? And one piece of it is the grassroots, and I applaud them and I encourage them to continue. But the other is, you know, working uh, with industry, working with investors, working with all parties to get to 60 votes. You know, at the end of the day, I don't really care why you vote the way you do. I just care that you vote the right way. So I have to find an argument that appeals to you. But I mean, it's still at some point somebody's going to have to stand up to the fossil fuel industry and say, you have to do this. I mean, 
you've been in this game for as long as anybody, 30 years. Are you optimistic, more optimistic now than you were? How do you sort of view the current situation? Well, I am optimistic in, in, in part because I just don't believe I'm 60-something that my generation is going to give to my grandchildren a problem they can't solve. Um, I think that the, 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 one of the, the consequences of all of the delays to date is we can't only talk about reducing carbon pollution anymore. We have to talk about adaptation. We have to uh, talk about uh, rehabilitation. You know, we have to talk about the whole panoply of things that we will do. But I, I, I think that um, we are making progress. And I give the new members of Congress a lot of credit for raising their voices. Carol Browner climate advisor to Barack Obama and chief of the EPA during the Clinton administration. She spoke with John Cassidy, a staff writer at The New Yorker.